you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. There have been lots of deliverers over history who can save from political and military situations, economic recovery. But who can rescue us from the sin that is part of who we are and the death that that sin brings? Only Jesus, the God-man. And we celebrate that gospel, the gospel of Jesus. We are in John chapter 6, and I want to start by thanking Joel for preaching last Sunday morning, and then Andrew uh, for covering last Sunday evening. We are greatly blessed as a congregation to have um, many men who can handle the Word of God uh, faithfully and deliver it to us. If you think about it, that's really our mission as a people. Um, Those that teach the Word of God are to teach other men also. Um, Not that we trained these men, we're we're co-laborers, but but we ought to be multiplying ourselves. We ought to uh, be spreading the Word. We ought to be spreading the ability to share the good news and to teach the Word, and we are blessed that way in our congregation. I hope that uh, you regularly thank God for His kindness to us as a congregation. We're going to pick up where Joel left off. We're in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, John 6, 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did not I choose You, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Key verses in verses 66 to 67, establishing the theme for the paragraph we're looking at this morning. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? The term disciples is a common word in the New Testament for learners and followers. Disciples learn in order to teach others, and they follow 
in order to imitate their master's way of life. It's a very common term commonly used. And sometimes when you're reading books on discipleship, they make it sound as if you've got just like normal Christians, and then you have advanced Christians called disciples. But, but actually, just the opposite is true. The New Testament usage of the term shows that all genuine Christians are also disciples. Okay? They are followers and learners. But as this text demonstrates, not all disciples, not all followers and learners are actually Christians. That is, believers who possess salvation. We kind of get, tend to get that reversed. A disciple is just someone who's learning and following, not necessarily believing yet, not necessarily saved. So, some who have interest in Jesus and His teaching end up turning back and going away. Others stay. And the question we want to know the answer to is what makes the difference? That's important for us to know, since on any given Sunday, both the groups are present in our services. Our passage this morning reveals the distinguishing characteristics of unbelief and those of faith among the outward followers of Jesus. And it leaves us with the challenge to press through whatever might tempt us to turn away and instead lean the full weight of our trust on Jesus. Persevering faith in Him will be worth it, whereas falling away from Him is disastrous forever. So, we want to look first at why disciples of Jesus turn away. Why disciples of Jesus turn away? We see that's what the the passage opens with in verses 60 to 63, and then we see them turning away in 66. And then in verses 67 to 69, why disciples of Jesus stay? And Peter articulates that for us. And then finally, in verses 64 to 65, and also in 70 to 71, the chapter ends with, the Lord knows whether disciples actually believe or not. So let's look at the teaching that we find here. First, consider with me why disciples of Jesus turn away. We read in verse 60, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? When they say this is a hard saying, they're, they're not saying so much that it's hard to understand as that it's hard to accept. And that's why Jesus says, he asks them whether they've taken offense. Have you stumbled over this? Does this scandalize you? Can you not receive this because you, you really just can't accept this to be true? And for that reason, they grumbled about what he was saying instead of receiving it by faith, despite the identity and mission of the one from whom they heard these hard sayings coming. So, Jesus has done these miracles. He, he teaches like no one else they've ever heard, and yet when He starts to say things that are hard for them to receive, hard for them to accept, all the, the miracles and the teaching kind of go out the window. They say, oh, we, we can't handle this. So, what was it that Jesus said that was so hard to accept? What has is, what is He been saying? This is obviously the end of a very long chapter. And uh, he's been talking for some time. It's over a short period of time that he's been teaching. And we drop back to, to verses immediately preceding this that, that Joel covered last week in John 6, 54 to 58. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, now he's not talking about the Lord's table. He hasn't instituted that yet. That, that would make no sense to them at all. He, he's talking about something else. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, the enemies of Jesus recoiled at His graphic description of faith in Him as eating His flesh and drinking His blood, as if He's calling people to cannibalism. And He was certainly not doing that, and actually they knew He was not doing that, but it was offensive the way that He worded this. What they and others really objected to, however, was His testimony regarding His identity and His origin and His saving mission. He has called God His Father. He has declared that the miracles He's doing are the works that the Father is doing through Him. He has called Himself the Son of Man, using language Daniel used in the Old Testament, who descended from heaven, not just a normal human born of Mary, and they added Joseph, not being aware or accepting His virgin birth. More, He had declared that, that bringing just… just rather than just bringing physical substance, sustenance to people that God provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness through manna, He, Jesus, is bringing spiritual life. Remember, this whole discussion got started because He fed the 5,000, and they, they want more physical sustenance. They're, they're interested in the here and now. And He's saying, there's something better and greater that I bring to you as the bread that comes from heaven, and that's spiritual life that lasts forever. The life He gives those who believe in Him is eternal, whereas those who ate the manna ended up dying. I mean, really, who cares if you live uh, and, and end up being very wealthy and very well-fed, and you have a beautiful home and great cars and all of that, at the end of all of it, you're going to die, and then what? And, and it comes fast. It comes really fast, no matter how long you, you live. Well, to eat and drink Jesus is to trust Him for this life, just as we eat and drink physical food to sustain life. If you don't eat and drink physical food and drink, you eventually die. It's inevitable. If you don't fully trust Christ to give you eternal life, you will inevitably die the spiritual death of suffering the everlasting wrath of God for your sin. So to bank everything on Christ is what he's calling them to do, and, and that was a bridge too far for many of his disciples. They, they wanted to have Jesus around for providing physical food. They, they wanted to be amazed at his miracles they found his teaching interesting, stimulating, but full trust, full commitment, that was asking too much. To trust him to that level meant giving up control of their own lives. It, it meant letting go of anyone or, or anything else to bring them the life that they most wanted. 
It bypassed the the political and economic deliverance that they wanted from the Messiah, that they wanted Him to provide for them there and, and, and at that time. Spiritual life? Eternal life? What does that matter if you're still hungry and you're still under Rome's oppressive iron boot? That's the way that they're thinking. They don't really want what Jesus is offering, and they don't want to commit at the level he's calling in terms of faith. And what's really striking to me as I was reading this passage, verse 59 says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. In other words, he's teaching those who have come together for teaching of the Scriptures and for worship. These are religious people who identify with Bible religion. He's not talking to just the rabble in the streets with no interest in religion of their Jewish forefathers. He's talking to people like us. The fact is, unbelief worms its way into the very places most familiar with divine revelation. Some of Christ's chief enemies knew their Bibles better than anybody else around. Well, Capernaum was one of those places familiar with divine revelation coming from the very lips of Jesus Christ. It functioned as a base of much of his ministry, and and yet despite hearing his teaching and witnessing his miraculous works, many people in Capernaum maintained their unbelief. They sat on the fence. They held back. They wouldn't fully commit. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, the men of Sodom, that horrible city full of horrible sin, they would have actually repented. And you stand there stone-faced. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Jesus is underscoring how high the stakes are for those who persist in their unbelief. Not only are they refusing to trust Jesus in the way His miracles and His teachings call for, they are shutting off their only hope of standing before God in the final day and and being forgiven and and being welcomed into the everlasting kingdom. They are rejecting Jesus in His role as the Son of Man, who according to Daniel 7, will judge the entire world and rule an everlasting kingdom of the saints. They refuse to believe that He, like no other human being, had descended from heaven to give them eternal life. What would they do when He returned to heaven? adding more proof that he was not just a normal human being, but he was indeed the promised son of man. This is what Jesus says in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? See, Jesus did not leave this earth the way everybody else does in a grave. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven All his enemies had to do to disprove his claims to being the Messiah and the Savior and the Lord was to produce his dead body, and they could not do so, despite the fact that they had set a Roman guard around the tomb. 
and, and rolled a heavy stone across the mouth of it. Why couldn't they produce the body? Because it was not there. So, they concoct a ridiculous story that a contingent of Roman soldiers, I mean, these are the people that have conquered the world. I mean, they're pretty good at military stuff, could not keep his disciples, fishermen, tax gatherers, from rolling away a massive stone from the mouth of the tomb and stealing his body. Which, by the way, these disciples are frightened for their lives. Not one of them expects Jesus to rise again after the crucifixion. You see, you can't fit Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, into your man-made naturalistic box. He is who He is. He will fulfill His mission. He is Savior. He is Judge. He is Lord. He is the one who can give you eternal life, and He is the one that will pronounce eternal judgment if you refuse to come. He says in verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These very words that you're so offended at, these words are conveying a truth you really need to hear. Everybody knows that a physical body must be animated by spirit to live. At many a funeral visitation, we file by the casket containing the body of one that we knew well and loved much. It's the same body, but the living spirit is gone. And the flesh cannot make itself alive or do the things that living beings can do. The same is true of the life that the Spirit of God gives to mortal beings who trust in Jesus and rely on the truths that He taught. We must have life. The flesh, the body, the natural cannot do everything that needs to be done. This is what Jesus has said earlier in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's a coming resurrection when the physical bodies will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come alive and will stand before God. But even in the present, there is a call from the Son of God that calls to life those that are dead in trespasses and sins and makes them alive to the truth of God and helps them put faith in Him and receive life from Him. The spoken utterance of Jesus convey spiritual life-giving truth. His words, like God's words, let there be light. His words bring life. God uses the Word to call us to life and to regenerate us. We must be born again. That's what regenerate means. We must be born again this way, or we will never see the kingdom of God. Remember, Christ told Nicodemus these very things. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, that's going to be the result 
the impact of those that actually believe their life changes, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, in other words, not of human seed, but of imperishable, that is, divine seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring life from God to people that are dead. For all flesh is like grass, he quotes from Isaiah, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever, and this Word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. God's words are powerful, and His gospel words bring life to those who receive them. So we go back to the problem here. Why do people turn away? It has to do with finding things Jesus said hard to accept. So what sayings of Jesus do you find hard to accept? It's funny to me sometimes when people talk about, well, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, but, but we just can't accept organized religion and the things that the church says. I mean, Jesus was, you know, he's all kind and, and compassionate, and he always said soft things. And, and I'm like, have you even read a Bible? I mean, have you ever? I mean, Jesus said some of the most disturbing things you can find written in human language. Because he knows exactly where we are, and he tells it exactly like it is. So, so what sayings of Jesus do you find hard to accept? Some of those sayings have been in this very chapter. And what clear statements in Scripture are you unwilling to receive and yield to? You know, in a different, different seasons of history, there are different things that run cross-grain with the spirit of the age. Oh, well, that can't be so. Because we are in, you know, every age is into groupthink to some degree or another. And, and the Bible won't bow to the latest trend. And the Bible won't bow to long-established tradition. The Bible, God's Word, tells it like it is. Jesus tells it like it is. So what do you find hard to receive that comes from God? And what will you do if you let what is hard for you to receive keep you from leaning the weight of your trust in Jesus, the Son of Man, to save you rather than condemn you. I mean, you can have your argument, you know, your theological arguments and your speculations, and, and, and you, can, you can divide up into your camps and all like that, but what are you going to do with Jesus and who He is and what He's done and the fact that you and I have no hope whatsoever unless we have Him? All the philosophy and all the arguments and all the debate. Matters, I mean, you might win an argument. Who cares? You're still lost. You need Jesus. What are you going to do with him? I mean, really, and does it really make sense to say, well, Jesus, I didn't receive you as God the Son. I didn't receive you as Savior of the world because there were just some things that I, I just couldn't get my head around. Well, duh. Like, how smart do we think we actually are? Don't let the hard sayings turn you away. Remember who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is. And that leads us to why disciples of Jesus stay. 
We read in verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him. And, and, you know, these words, like they ring in our hearts, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know. In other words, we've been living with you long enough. We've been watching long enough. We've seen enough. We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that, and as you read the New Testament record of these disciples, the disciples of Jesus who stay do so not because they understand everything. I mean, if you think you're going to understand everything, you're, you're not thinking through this clearly. We're talking about an infinite God, and we are finite human beings. You know, that's like, you know, it's like an elementary school kid telling a, a, a math, mathematics professor who teaches university level that what he says can't be true because he can't understand it. When Jesus refuses to pander to what His listeners want to hear, those who believe refuse to be scandalized by His words. Instead, they lean into them. They recognize their own limitations. Who are they to judge the infinite God in human flesh? Who are they to find fault with the only Savior and universal judge? Who are they to treat the sinless one as somehow unacceptable? And Peter articulates several realities that help us hold fast to our faith in Jesus. First, he asks, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? What's the alternative? There are thousands today who spend their days critiquing Christianity, mocking the flaws of professing Christians, scoffing at the teachings of the Bible that don't align with the dogma of currently widely held opinions, but they offer no satisfactory alternatives. I mean, really, what has atheism produced? One of the most common excuses for atheism is the problem of evil. That is, how could there be a good, all-powerful God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, atheism has no solution to the problem of evil and suffering. How do you even know what evil is if you have no authoritative way to define good and evil? If there's no good, all-powerful God in the world, then how about the opposite question? How come there's so much good and so much beauty and so much design in our universe? I mean, we can talk about the problems, but what about all the good? Where did that come from? What is beauty even for if it's just a, a utilitarian, naturalistic universe? What's it for? And where did conscience come from? Why do we even care about love and honesty and loyalty or fairness? All atheism does is use the fact that we don't understand everything as an excuse not to listen to what has been clearly revealed about God and documented by countless eyewitnesses. It doesn't answer the big questions. 
It doesn't provide substantive alternatives. It just beats its chest with proud defiance and declares itself free to define reality however it wants. It's arrogant fantasy. So Peter's first question is, who else is there? What else is there that offers anything like what Jesus brings? And second, Peter homes in on the unparalleled teaching of Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Peter and his fellow disciples who believe in Jesus desire eternal life. They, they hunger and thirst to be, be right before the judgment bar of God, to be granted forgiveness rather than condemnation that they deserve. They, they long for that restored universe set free from the scourge of sin and death. They want to be citizens of that eternal kingdom of the promised Messiah. You know, even those that don't believe in Jesus admit that his teaching was extraordinary. You can't just bypass Jesus as a run-of-the-mill holy man or a flash-in-the-pan celebrity or just one of the great minds of history. His words won't let you go there. His life won't let you go there either. And the impact of his life on others won't let you go there. If you pay attention to the eyewitness history regarding what he did and what he said, you find that Jesus is in a category all by himself. As the song says, Jesus, there's no one like you. And then third, Peter adds that they have come to believe who Jesus is and what his mission is. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is not just wishful thinking. This is testimony to what they've been persuaded to believe because of what they've seen and what they've witnessed. Peter's words remind us of what he confessed in Matthew 16, and, and actually some manuscripts will transfer what he said in Matthew 16 into this text because the title he uses here is far less common. But what, Jesus, what Peter calls Jesus here is the Holy One of God. I'd like us to go to Mark 1 to see kind of the significance of this title, and, and it comes from an unexpected source. They went into Capernaum. Interestingly enough, it was also in Capernaum where this event happens. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, or you're citing everybody else. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demon, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God, who is a spiritual being, an angelic being that has taken over this man, and he recognizes who Jesus is. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. He didn't need the testimony of demons. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, cried out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I don't know, but I'm sure that Peter never forgot that. And, and he knows from many instances of, of watching Jesus teach and seeing what he did, that he is the Holy One of God. And Jesus helps us further understand what the title conveys with these words in John 10, 36. 
Do you say of him, he's talking to his enemies here who won't believe, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, made holy, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Peter is saying that God the Father has uniquely consecrated Jesus, the Son of God, for his saving mission. In the Old Testament, God calls himself the Holy One of Israel, and Jesus is God's Holy One, the only one God the Father has consecrated, set apart, appointed to save us. There's nobody else who can do it. You are the Holy One of God. So that leaves us with these questions. While alternatives to following Jesus, do you believe will suit you better? Sometimes the way we live shows that we've chosen some other kind of salvation, something that matters to us more. And what teaching have you found to be superior to that of Jesus? I mean, you really want to go head-to-head on that. And what else can take the place of Jesus, the Holy One of God, to save you? Number three, the Lord knows whether disciples actually believe or not. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And then down in verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knows who is a true believer and who is not. He has known them from the beginning. You can fake out your family and friends, but Jesus knows you for who you really are. That's why in the judgment, he will say things like this, Matthew 7, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. In other words, in a saving way, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who come to Jesus come to him because the Father draws them. He gives them to the Son. Otherwise, no rebel against God would ever want to come. We are all rebels, sinners by birth and by choice. So what can possibly change our desire and will? Only God. He turns the light on. The Spirit convicts our hearts of sin and convinces us that Christ, what Christ says about Himself is actually true and that it's, it's reliable and that His mission is what He says it was and, and that this is desirable. The Holy Spirit, God Himself does this. We are born again by the Spirit. All true believers are so because they were taught of God, because nobody can give birth to Himself. In this passage, in multiple ways, talks about God the Father granting us the ability to come. John 1.13 says it, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Now, that's why even among those Christ chose to be his apostles was one who never truly believed, Judas Iscariot. He loved money. He followed Jesus for economic and political advantage. His greed led him to steal from the disciples' money he was supposed to be taken care of. He was the betrayer, the one who would turn Jesus over to the authorities to be crucified according to God's foreordained plan. That's why he was included in the twelve. Jesus knew that Judas was a fake from the beginning. Jesus knows the fakes in any congregation. Just because you sit with Christians in a service doesn't make you a real believer. Jesus calls Judas a devil, a slanderer. Why does he call him that? Well, when Jesus had a direction Judas didn't want, when it wasn't paying off like he thought it would, he turned against him. In fact, Satan himself took possession of Judas the night that Judas left the Last Supper, went to the authorities that lead him to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did not want Jesus to rule his life. He did not want the kind of salvation that Jesus brought. He wanted something more earthly. And that left him to the tyranny of Satan. So you will be dominated by one master or another. It's just which one you want. Be comforted by this, however. Jesus also knows those who are truly his. He knows the fakes, yes, but he knows those who are truly his. He prays for them. Remember, he prayed for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail. He protects them. And not one of his true followers will ever be lost. John 17, 12, he says it explicitly in his prayer to the Father, his great high priestly prayer. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. In other words, one that was already headed to destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what part, if any, of your following of Jesus is just pretending? I mean, we all, we all want to belong. What part is just pretending? And if you are really trusting in Jesus, how can meditation on the fact that Jesus personally knows you, he knows you by name, and holds you fast forever, we sing, he will hold me fast, help you hold on to your faith in him. We hold on to him because he's holding on to us. Turn away or stay. There's a reason disciples turn away from Jesus. There's a reason other disciples stay. And the Lord knows which is which. Let's pray. Dear God, this is an encouraging passage and at the same time a sobering one. And God, we pray that by your Spirit, to the glory of your Son, you would help us see our true state before you, and that we would be willing to bow the knee and trust you fully, that we would not let the hard things turn us away, that we would not seek some alternative, 
It's the salvation that you alone can bring and do bring to those who trust in you. God, I pray even among the number here this morning that you would call out your own and give them life and give them faith and cause them to trust fully in Jesus. In his name.